bear with me on this one. There's a lot of uh, complicated words. <laughs> Feel free to laugh with me. It's uh, Acts 2, 5 to 13. Now, now there were saying, now they were, now there were, these aren't even the hard words. <laughs> now there were staying in, <laughs> in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews and every nation under, under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of you hears, hears them in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia, and Pamalama, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, Near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts in Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. All right. Hey, good job, by the way. Big words. All right. Everybody good? Yes. Me too. So last week we had our baptism service. It was beautiful and amazing. And if you didn't show up, you missed it. And your life would have been changed. Um, and uh, I'm very proud of everyone who stepped up and, and they spoke some words to us and encouraged us and, and joined us uh, through baptism. And it was beautiful. So um, I think there was like 15 or 20. Those may be pastor numbers, which are usually inflated. But I'm trying to be accurate. So it was really beautiful. Um, Good to see you all again this week. Um, okay, so Acts chapter 2. I kind of set the stage two weeks ago about what we're doing with Acts chapter 2. Um, to understand the first and second, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1 and 2, the first and second chapters of Acts, um, you have to keep diving back into the Old Testament. Uh, specifically, a collection of books at the very beginning called the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Um, and it's the first five books. So... Last, I keep saying, I'm going to say last week, as in last sermon. Last sermon, we, we opened up sort of the establishment of the temple, the tabernacle. It was a structure. It was a building. It was a place where heaven and earth came together. And it was the one place on earth that was like the portal between God and man, where, where things were as they should be, humanity and God dwelling together in a single space that was lost um, through... Um, idolatry and them being sent into, into uh, exile and the temple being ransacked and burnt to the ground. And every time they get this temple, they lose it. And we also looked at the story of Adam and Eve and how the picture of the Garden of Eden is this giant allegory of the people of Israel losing their Eden, their temple, their place where they are supposed to dwell with God and humankind together. Um, so we understood that. We also understand now that the church is the new temple. God did this whole brand new thing, um, spoken through the words of Isaiah and Ezekiel, that God would one day make a new temple and it would be different. And now we get to Acts chapter 2, and it is the gathering of God's people together. The temple is now a gathering of people. It's no longer a structure and a building. And whenever God's people come together, that is the place where heaven and earth come together, where God and humanity are combined and together. Um, 
And where we do the work of God, we reconcile people to God, we welcome people in, um, we offer them forgiveness from their sins, and we offer them grace and a whole new identity and a whole new way of, of being human in the world, okay? Now, we come to today's sermon, and it's sort of like the continuation of like, first off, there's this wind and there's this fire, whole thing happens, and we talked about it. Um, and then there's this conversation. There's all these people that sort of gather around to witness this, and something specific happens to them. And so this is what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into, we're actually going to start today all the way back in the Old Testament at Genesis chapter 10. And it's a very long passage with lots more crazy words, so I just put a bunch of ellipses to fill in all the dots. Now, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this to make sense of what we're reading. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people, and guide our time together today. Um, guide me as I speak. Let me speak clearly. Let me um, let this um, flow smoothly. Let us all grasp the concepts that uh, Luke is, is laying out for us. Um, remind us that um, you are present in all of this, that you are speaking to us, that you have a way that we are called to respond to all of this. Let us see it. Let us embrace it. Let us change. Um, uh, enliven us. Give us joy. Let us be present together. Let us see each other and love each other and, uh, and belong to each other, Lord. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. Now, from the very beginning of the church, um, I'm talking apostolic fathers. Those are, the, those are the original sort of writers of the earliest texts of Christianity after the scriptures, well, before the scriptures were really canonized. Um, these people who knew the apostles, who knew the disciples of Jesus, um, and they learned from them. And they wrote... Um, all these letters, the apostolic fathers, all the way back at the very beginning of that, people have sawn, seen, sawn, sawn a connection between Genesis 10 and 11 and Acts chapter 2. Um, I'm going to make that connection for you today because it seems that we've forgotten this connection. And so we're going we're gonna to reestablish it and we're going to see it and we're going to understand what it means. So first thing you'll see is, um, if you want to today, turn on your Bibles and go to uh, Genesis chapter 10. Um, I mean, if you're analog, if you're like old school, there's some paper ones gathered in the chairs as well. Um, and uh, analog, analog Bibles, we call them. Um, now, um, and turn to Genesis chapter 10 because there's a lot more text. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's what's called um, a table of nations, okay? Now, the table of nations is how a sort of post-exilic world looked in the mind of um, these ancient Israelites. Post-exilic uh, means after they were in exile, after they were sort of lost Jerusalem, lost their city, their temple, their prisoners in Babylon, basically. Um, and in their minds, these are the people of the worlds and how they looked. Um, and they wrote down this sort of table of nations. If you head north, you're going to see these people. If you head west, you're going to see these people. East, you're going to see these people. South, you're going to see these people. And that's what you see here. Now, the parts that I removed with the ellipses here, um, basically there's a few more names and there's some descriptions of where exactly they settled. And then it's going to say, and each tribe had their own language, or it's going to say tongue. Um, each tribe has their own language. So they've spread out into the world and they each had their own language. And, um, and they're, they're separated sort of into three groups. Uh, the, uh, the Jephthites, the Hamites, and the Semites. And they're sort of... Um, when you look at the ancient world, sort of a compass, Jerusalem was the center. We're going to get more to that in a, cent in, in a few minutes. Um, north would not have been for them sort of straight. It would have been sort of like crooked. And then south would have been over here. And then like 
east, and then west like this. Um, and so in their minds, they're at the center in the same way that like in, in America, when you, a teacher like pulls up a giant map or pulls down or projects a, a map of the world, in America, America's at the center of the map of the world. Um, I, remember, I remember this person when I was, when I was in school, um, she was from Europe somewhere and she walked into someone's room and they had, a, they had a giant poster of the world and they're like, of course you have America at the center. I'm like, don't you have like Britain in the center of yours? I mean, don't we all kind of put our country at the center of our map? That is what's happening here. And so what we have here is a description of the nations surrounding all of the promised land, Jerusalem, in every direction. And it sort of starts in one direction. It moves around. Um, and so... This is how they saw it. The people are separated. They have their own languages. Now, that's Genesis 10. In Genesis 11, there's a particular story that is, I guess you could say, it's going to be sort of the description of how they got these languages. But it's not just this story. This is an ancient tale that was told. And the Israelites tell this story uh, in a way that explains a theological point about the separation of nations in the world. I hope you're following me. Let's go. Uh, It goes like this. The whole world had one language. And a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Um, They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Let's pause here for a second. So we have this click forward, this giant jump forward in technology. Um, They had always, in their minds, built things with stones. You find stones, you either have to fit them together to build a giant wall, and it can only take a certain shape depending on the stones you have, and sort of not the best mortar. Um, And they realize, um, instead of chiseling stones or stacking the stones, what we can do is we can can take clay, and we can mix it with straw and some other stuff that's laying around, and we we can bake it in the sun, and we can make uniform stones called bricks, and we can build whatever we want. We can build any shape we want. These buildings can be taller and higher and walls can be thicker and stronger. And this is a huge step forward. And it's sort of this moment of pride where the people sort of realize we are great and we are smart and we're wise. And if we can do this, we can do anything. And so they have an idea. Um, Then they said, come and let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. Hold on. Um, in the ancient world, you did not make names for yourselves. You, had a, you were lived in a geography. Your geography had a deity. That deity only belonged to your place, and you lived there, and your entire purpose was to make the name of your God great. Hallowed be thy name, not ours. So it's this moment where the people are, are sort of making de- deities of themselves and making themselves more divine. Um, it's a replay again of, of Genesis where this, the serpent walks in and says, hey, uh, I mean, the moment you eat this, you're going to be like God. Um, in other words, you can rule yourself. You can usurp the throne of God. And so this is sort of what's happening here. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Instead of this, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather together and we're going to be one people with these minds. We're going to rule ourselves and so what they're building here is called a ziggurat. Um, some of these still exist around the world. This is the ancient ziggurat of Ur. The facade has been rebuilt so that you know sort of what it looks like. Um, and this would have sort of stacked higher and higher and higher and higher, much, much taller than it is now. Um, and this is what the people have in mind. These things are in every nation of the world uh, where there is 
signs of ancient people. It's in Peru and Mexico and different parts of Europe and Egypt and Babylon and all kinds of places. And the whole point of this ziggurat that they're building is to build it as high as they can so that they can get to the top of the sky. Now, I know we understand cosmology a particular way. There is no top to the sky. There's the atmosphere, and you can punch through the atmosphere, and you can enter into space, and there's a vast array of nothingness and space between stars and all these kinds of things. In the ancient world, they didn't know this stuff. We didn't know this stuff until five, 600 years ago. Um, in the ancient world, your general idea of the cosmos was that, and, and this is in all cultures, the idea was that there was this solid firmament of dome. It's, it's even mentioned in Genesis. This solid dome that went over the sky and it was like this solid, solid thing. And above the firmament was where the gods lived. And, and in, in the minds of Israel, it was where Yahweh lived. Um, and then there was these holes sort of poked in the firmament that are shining the glory of God. The stars are shining through. So the heavens declare the glory of God. You have this whole picture and the world was flat. It's something you can see in corners of YouTube videos. Um, and... This is their understanding of cosmology at the time. And so their big plan was very simple. We're going to build with bricks with this new technology. We're going to make ourselves great. And we are going to build a tower to the top of the sky. And we are going to climb through. And we are going to sit on the throne of the universe. And we are going to rule ourselves. This is the great warning in all of Genesis 1 through 11. This is the story that is told over and over and over again because it is the warning of the writers of the Pentateuch for God's people. Do not serve yourselves. Do not follow your own desires for this world. Do not demand a king for yourself, which of course they did. Um, they wanted a human king. They wanted to rule themselves. They wanted to be like everyone else. And God looks at me and says, I am your king. You should follow me and be united behind me. It's not good enough. We want to rule ourselves like the rest of the world does. You're not going to like it. So this is sort of a retelling of that story. This is what's going on. It's a foretelling so that when you get to the story, you're going to know that they should not be doing this, right? Um, so you keep reading in the story, and it says this, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us come, go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, all, uh, from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. Uh, this is why it was called Babel, uh, because, the Lord, uh, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So, um, it is when they attempt to deify themselves instead of the rightful deity that God sort of confuses their language. And the result is that they cannot keep working together. And each group begins to sort of gather in their own groups, depending on how they speak, what languages they speak. And they begin to move away from each other. And this is sort of the divided time. Um, and they grow farther and farther away. And all who speak the same languages, um, they gather together and they sort of become tribalized. And they care more for themselves than for the unity of all. And they move farther and farther away. So all of Genesis 3 through 11, the entirety of the story from 3 to 11 in Genesis is the story of what happens when people listen to the voice of the snake and they take part in idolatry. And the snake says, you can be like, you can rule yourselves. You don't need a king. Um, you, are, you are smart. You are wise. And gosh darn it, people love you. And you can rule yourselves. And, and so like... The putting of the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God. And so they build this tower and are trying to get it all the way to heaven. And the ultimate symbolism of the Tower of Babel is that humans are trying to bring heaven and earth together from below. They're trying to create this utopia 
uh, to set things to right themselves. They believe themselves capable enough and smart enough. And they believe that they can come to God from underneath. And the arrogance of human empires, this artificial uniformity in speaking with one language and building these massive symbols of pride in themselves and centered on themselves. And so God looks down and God says, that is not how it's done. Things, the, uh, this thing cannot be restored by you. This, this whole thing is broken. You are the ones who broke it. What makes you think that you are the ones who can actually repair it and fix it? You can't restore all that is broken by pride and human plans. You need the voice of God, but you instead have been listening to the snake. And so he confuses their tongues and they separate and they spread. Now, that is the story of Genesis 10 and 11. And this is how a first century Jew, we know from their writings, this is how they would have understand, understood this passage. It may not be how modern evangelicals understand it. This is the Jewish way of understanding this. Now, um, again, I want to I I paint this for you so you can make sure you get the whole thing. Here's my map of the Mediterranean, all right? There's the sea, there's the land. That's all you need to know. Jerusalem's there. Not complicated. Now, what's going on in the Tower of Babel here um, is in Genesis chapter 10, you have this table of nations. You have the Jephthites up here, sort of to the north. You also have them to the east, more Jephthites over here. Um, And over here, you have the Hamites. And over here, you have the Semites. And they're spreading out. And in the middle of underneath these headings of Jephthites and, and Hamites and Semites, there's all these, all these towns listed and all these peoples listed and all these people groups and languages. And what you're looking at is sort of this, it's, they're not in one direction. It's like a perfect 360 spread of like the compass all the way around, around the world. So Jerusalem is the center and the world is out there and everyone has spread sort of from this place. Now, um, this is how they see it. Now, let's leave this here. Let's go now to Acts chapter 2. And today's passage, this is actually the passage right before today's passage, and we need to catch up a little bit. It says this. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 120 people, disciples of Jesus. Not just the 12, but all 120 are there, Luke tells us. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, obviously, this is all reminisce of, like we talked about before, of first Sinai, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple, the fire, the wind, the smoke, them wandering in the desert, being led by the presence of God. All of that is here, and, and, and God is back. And God left his temple 500 years ago, and suddenly, God is back, and we are now the temple. And while they're doing this, they begin to speak in languages that they didn't know, um, and it's called tongues, speaking in tongues. And there's two different types of tongues in the scriptures. And we're going to talk about tongues in a, in a, in a few weeks here. I'm going to talk about this meaning today, um, uh, the meaning of sort of the, the, the Tower of Babel meaning. And they all start speaking in languages that they did not know. And it begins to gather a crowd. There's people from everywhere. Now, in this particular year, um, Josephus tells us that this was an interesting year where all the festivals sort of coalesced on one, on one sort of one month period. So Jews from all over the world are gathering in Jerusalem at the same time uh, to go to the festivals to celebrate Passover um, and first fruits and all these festivals together. And they're hearing this thing happening in this house. 120 people gathered 
and there's a commotion, and it's apparently super windy in this house, and there's, like, lights coming from the house, and, like, they're like, what in the world? Some Disney World stuff happening, and they're, like, drawn to it, and they're looking at it, and it says this. It says, now they were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, hold on. They all did speak a unified language. The language is Greek. Uh, and Peter is going to be giving a speech to all of them in Greek in a couple of minutes. That is not what's happening here. They're not speaking Greek. They're speaking all these different languages at the same time. Um, they heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Like, they don't know Parthian. They don't know the language from Crete. They don't, they don't know any of this. The Medes and... Uh, aren't these all speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Cretans, not the insult. It's people from Crete, by the way. Um, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues and amazed and perplexed. By the way, I want to pause here because the word perplex is this, this word that means, literally translates to confused. Um, the reason Luke writes confused, these languages confuse them, is because it's the same word that in the, in the Greek version of, of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, it's the same word that is used in the Tower of Babel. God confused their languages. Well, now they hear their languages and they're confused. He's making these connections. And it says, and they asked one another, what does this mean? That is also the, the question that we should ask ourselves, each other. What does this mean? So, um... Again, for a first century Jew, once again, Jerusalem is at the center of their map. And if you look at all of this, um, it starts east of Jerusalem and then, then moves back to Judea. North of Jerusalem, it goes through Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, all these places. Um, what we see is this gathering of all the places that have scattered. However, the names of the places mentioned in the table of nations in Genesis 10 have been updated. So instead of Semites, we now have Arabia. We have all of these, we have Rome now. So we have what, their, what those places are called now. Luke mentions all of them with their new updated sort of, you know, 1800 year later name. And, and remember, Luke doesn't have a map. He, he would have had no access to a map. I think there's little, little bits and pieces like this. People, People forget how difficult things like this would have been to write and to do. So he's working a lot from memory. And so, um, but the way he actually does it is he actually kind of starts here and he kind of works his way around the map backwards, sort of counterclockwise when he names them all. But what he's doing is he's reconstructing the Genesis 10 table of nations. And instead of the move outwards and away, what he's doing is he's bringing them all back and giving them all, again, the same tongue again. And he's mending sort of the separateness and the brokenness of it all. So all these people, each with their native language, are somehow coming together here. And their native languages that have been separated by honoring themselves and elevating themselves and all of their divisions and all of their separateness is now at Pentecost being brought back together. Ooh, ouch. Uh, but, not through, but not through their own power. It's not like they're coming back together under their own human mind and saying, hey, we've created technology. We could make this Rosetta Stone and we could all learn to speak again the same language or we can use, download just the, the, that app 
that let you, I forget what it's called, disease something, who knows. But, um, and we could just all learn, they're not doing it through their own work. God is now reconciling and restoring and bringing everyone back together around Jesus, around the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in the church and the temple, the new temple made of people. And this is what God here is doing. And this is what the prophets have always referred to when they spoke about God, uh, rece- the world receiving a new king and the world being brought back together under God. This is the moment that the Christians look back at the prophet Isaiah and they say, well, this is it. The world is being reunited again. Everything that went wrong in the Pentateuch, all the separations, all the destruction, all the, all the things that went wrong there are being reversed, are being made whole again. And in the church, we are finding again Unity in Christ. Now, um, this is Acts 2. So this raises a lot of questions when you, re- when you read Acts 2 because normally people read Acts 2 and they ask um, a simple question like this. What does it look like that when, what a, there's a typo. What does it look like when the Spirit of God is present in the church? What does it look like when the Spirit of God is present in the church? And this answer, depending on who you ask, is going to be very, very different. If you ask five people, you're going to like six answers. Um, and for some, they look at the day of Pentecost and they say, the obvious sign that the Spirit of God is present in the church is uh, speaking in tongues, signs and wonders, healings, prophecy, stuff like this. Others take a completely different approach. I grew up Southern Baptist, and the sign that the Spirit of God was present was that like literally nobody was moving. They're just like <laughs> that the spirit was empowering you to not raise your hand. I can do it. I can keep it down. Literally had a guy lean over and say, "Don't raise your hands. We don't do that here." Oh, sorry. My bad. Um, and like and this is and so there's other people. I mean, some people say, "Well, it's just a general spirit of happiness and joy." Upbeat, it has to do with music sometimes, or like light shows and lasers and fog. And, um, or some people say it's the size of the crowd, how many people are gathering and whether or not it's growing. These are, these are the signs that the Spirit of God is present. Um, one of the big things in my youth that the sign that the Spirit of God was present in a community was a general sense of holiness, a general sense that like we're abstaining from sin, we're not drinking, we're not smoking, we're not going to R-rated movies, um, and we have a, um, a well-thought-out sort of understanding of, of, of philosophy and, and, and sort of science and, 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 you know, sexual ethics. And we have all these, and they're all laid out. And, and whether or not your church is, is generally living a holy life and adhering to these things, that is how you know whether or not a church is filled with the Holy Spirit, whether or not the Spirit of God is present in the church. So we have all these differing opinions. And the question remains, when we look at the text, how do we know that the presence of God is there in the church. And perhaps we need to think deeply about this for ourselves. Whatever we find here, we need to always be asking the question, at Watermark, is, is the Spirit of God present? And we need to ask this honestly. Um, I sometimes wonder if, if the Spirit of God were to actually move at Watermark, nobody would know what to do. We'd freak out and just leave. I'll be honest with you. I'm blatantly honest with you. There is this sense of um, there is this sense of, of intellectualism that, that can stifle everything from emotion to connection um, to presence, and so we need to think deeply about all of this. Um, here's the fact: when God comes down by His Spirit, 
the sign that we get from Acts chapter 2, um, it's not, it's actually not, when you, when you study the text, it's not centered upon the miraculous gift of tongues. The sign that the Spirit of God is present is much more about the reversing of all the things that have broken the world. It is the undoing of the separations. It is the reversal of the curses. It is the, um, the reuniting and the restoration of not just people with God, but people with people. When God comes down by his spirit, the effects of racial and cultural superiority, where we look at people and we say, well, it's, it, my culture is better than theirs, and they should really come this way, and this whole swath of people is like this, and this whole, but ours, we have the right way, and what we need is to sort of bring everyone towards us so they can understand what it really looks like to have a solid, good culture. These ideas completely fall apart in the church. They are leveled. They are destroyed. Um, these, these effects of superiority are leveled, and ethnic boundaries are, are, are totally removed. The way we know that the spirits um, has filled a person and a community is not that they have this new experience, this external experience, but that they have a new identity that leads them to a new attitude towards people, towards other people. And God filling them with the Spirit was done with the full intention of bringing reconciliation. God did not just fill people with the Spirit so that they could speak in tongues and that was the end of it. So they could look at them and be like, hey, that was neat. Do that again. I want to see that cool trick and then I'll keep coming back. That's not what the point of the tongues was. The point of the miraculous thing that happened was the reconciliation of all the people who had been separated and spread in the diaspora of God's people and bring them back together under God to make them one people again and remind them, you belong to each other. They belong to you, you belong to them as brothers and sisters. And this is the big move that God is doing through the miraculous thing. Um, this is what God is doing. It is not a show. It's not a sign that they were going to heaven. It was a, a spirit. Uh, it was the spirit of God using a miraculous event in order to set the world to rights and correct the things that had been broken. The other, the other person is no longer just a person who has a different language and a different nationality and a different ethnicity. The other person who has turned and looked and gathering near and listening, anyone gathering near, they are my brother or my sister. That is, that is what God is doing. Taking the things that have separated us and bridging those chasms and saying, be separated no more. Um, there was one thing I always noticed growing up was that in my church, I lived in Los Angeles and it was, we found like the only Southern Baptist church in Los Angeles and we went there and there, there, there was a demographic and that's it. There was, there was, there was middle class white people. And that's all I, I gathered with growing up. That's all we had. That's all we knew. But when I would go to my friends' churches, um, some of them were Pentecostal and charismatic, and it was always just an experience for me. I was like, what is this? There's flags and there's people, car wheeling. There's stuff happening. And I'm looking around. But the thing that stood out to me was always kind of like this, this is a diverse crowd. This is not like my church at home. This crowd has people from everywhere accents from everywhere. Why is this so different? Why is it the people who focus so much on the Spirit, on following the Spirit of God and living in the Spirit of God, why are their gatherings so diverse? Acts chapter 2 
is trying to tell you this. This is what it looks like when a people are being led by the Spirit of God. They are making room for everybody, whether or not you understand them or agree with them or any of it. This is what the book of Romans is about. This is what the book of Philemon is about. The Spirit of God taking people on opposite ends and bringing them together as brothers and sisters. And if you study the history of of the Pentecostal movement, um, and by the way, when you read a commentary on a passage, you should read widely. If you're going to study the Bible and you're going to read commentaries, like I I know a lot of you do, I get emails and, and saying, hey, what commentary can I read about this book and this book? And I love those emails. Keep sending them if you want to know what to study, commentaries to read. My big piece of advice, though, is you should read widely. I'm not just going to open up the book of Acts and, and read it and then read um, a, a commentary written by white Europeans every time or, or, or uh, medieval reformers. I'm going to read those, and I'm also going to read some African-American theologian commentaries. I'm going to read um, some sub-Saharan African commentaries. I'm going to read some Eastern Orthodox commentaries. I'm going to read some womanist commentaries. And I'm going to read um, some Asian, grassroots Asian commentaries on the passage. And I'm going to look for the areas where we all sort of see the same thing and we come together. And I'm going to say, okay, now what is this thing of all importance to all peoples? And I'm going to read from all these different texts. What I see in, 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 uh, in the African American experience particularly regarding this passage, is astounding. So the Pentecostal church um, was, was basically started, uh, the whole movement was kind of started by this guy named W.J. Seymour, William J. Seymour. Um, and his entire sort of movement in theology was centered upon Acts chapter 2, the reestablishing of a new people in the world who were going to do something different, led by the Spirit of God. Um, and he realized that Acts chapter 2 is absolutely essential for understanding, um, sort of understanding and addressing issues of slavery, of, hu- of, of human unity, of, of racism, of segregation. And Acts chapter 2 for him was this key to unlock all of it to free everyone in the world from these types of things and how to lead us out of them. So the Pentecostal movement, this guy kind of kicked off the whole thing. He was a self-educated African-American traveling holiness preacher from Louisiana. Self-educated because he wasn't allowed to attend white seminaries, which was pretty much all of them in America at the time. And he started preaching at something called the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles. And this was this surprise movement, this huge thing, this massive gatherings of people regularly. And this particular movement stood out among American Christianity because it was specifically interracial. It was very diverse. Um, very, very diverse. Now, um, Acts 2 was the essential text for the Azusa Street Revival. It was, it was the central sort of understanding of what it was that they were doing. And they understood the connections between Genesis 10 and 11 and Acts 2 And they understood that this is why it is diverse. And speaking in tongues was always a part of this. So when Seymour first began preaching his entire ministry, um, all of this was focused on, at the beginning, it was all focused on tongues as a main sign of the presence of the Spirit. So he would say, we know the Spirit is present because we're speaking in tongues. And, And this is how he started off understanding Acts 2. But what happened was over time, it became more and more diverse. And there started to becoming from Southern California, Mexicans coming north and from San Francisco, um, Asians coming south. And they all were coming and moving into the neighborhood and moving into the survival. And what happened was um, uh, whites began to flee from the church and move and start their own Pentecostal churches and then began to negatively speak about the Azusa Street revival um, in all these negative ways. And so what happened was 
Seymour, um, as this was happening, in his mind, he's looking around, he's saying, but they were all speaking in tongues. Like, this is the sign of the Spirit. Isn't that the sign that the Spirit is present, that they're all speaking in tongues? So why are all these people leaving? And then he began to rethink, and he began to study deeper and read widely, and, and he came to the conclusion at some point that his theology had to change, and he began to understand Acts 2 a little bit differently. Instead of seeing tongues and this ecstatic worship as the center of, uh, as the signs of the presence of the Spirit, he actually began to see the dissolution of racial barriers as the sign that God was present in their midst. And he began to understand that those who were led by the tendencies to otherize people and to move away from them, they are the ones who indeed are not being led by the Spirit and who are resisting the Spirit of God. But when we gather together, the dissolution of the racial barriers is the sure sign of the Spirit's Pentecostal presence. As in first century day of Pentecost, that Spirit of God gathering amongst the people. It was no longer this, we did signs and wonders. It was now, we are moving towards each other. We see each other as brothers and sisters. We're making space for each other. And he began to study the words of Paul. And as he studied the spiritual gifts, this particular theme began to emerge everywhere. And as he's reading Paul, he starts seeing passages like uh, Galatians 5, where it says, the fruit of the Spirit, which is what happens, what grows on you when the Spirit is present in your life, uh, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he understands the writing of Paul correctly, that when Paul is saying you, he's not saying you individually, he's saying you collectively. Paul didn't, the only Paul letter Paul wrote um, of his main writings to individuals was Philemon. The rest of it is written to churches, gatherings of people. Um, and so when Paul says, the fruit that will grow upon you when you are filled with the Spirit, when your community is present with the Spirit of God, is love and joy and peace and patience. Like you will, these are all relational. They're not showy. They're not individual. They're all having to do with how you treat other people. All of it. And then you read a little farther, you get down to 1 Corinthians, and you see, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. You can have as holy of a life as you want. You can have the most well-thought-out theology and the most well-understood and articulated sexual ethic. You can have everything that you look around and you say, this is the pinnacle of spirituality and Christianity and we've got it all figured out and here it is and we have publishing deals and we have books and all of it's laid out perfectly. But if you don't love people and you're not taking part in the reconciliation of God to all people and in the church, you are not led by the Spirit. You're not. This is a sign to all of us. Are you moving towards people or are you keeping those walls up and standing back and judging and demanding that people come towards you? That is not an act of the Spirit. That is an act of Babylon. That is the enemy. Driving you away from people who are your brother, who are your sister. This is why white supremacy is demonic. This is why any kind of, of sort of being lackadaisical on issues of race and oppression, they are absolutely antithetical to what God is doing in the world. Absolutely. 
And we must address them. We must see them in ourselves. We must inspect our lives. And we must say, how am I not making place for the presence of spirit so that I can welcome this other person in my life? How am I not doing this? How am I not reaching? And from this point on, the signs of the Spirit became the inclusion of all people together in reconciliation, creating a new community of unity and equality. The Spirit of God brings this egalitarian presence wherever it goes, and it always has. That's why the early church had at the table, the, fellowship, the, the, the table of fellowship, the love feast, the agape feasts. You have slave and free, men and women. You have, you have Gentile and Jew. You have all kinds of people. You have, and they're, they're all gathering together from all walks of life. And they're equal. And they're making space for each other. And they're listening to each other. And they see each other. And they ask each other, how are you? What is God doing in your life? How can I be a part of it? And this is what they're focusing on. So, so the question that we have is, what is the proper response to Acts chapter 2? Well, the, the, the correct response is not. Like the incorrect response is to force a recreation of Acts chapter 2. The incorrect response is to say, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do our best to create like these ecstatic events and things that happen. That is not the... That's not the point of Acts. The point of Acts chapter 2 is God is going to do what God is going to do to bring outsiders in to gather under King Jesus. I used to be able to say Jesus is king without people thinking about Kanye West. Like now, I said it a long time ago. I'm still going to say it. It's not what I'm referring to. Like, if Jesus is king, then God is going to use whatever God has at his disposal to bring people from around the world, all these various people, together. Um, the correct response to Pentecost, to the tongues event, is what is God doing and how can we follow and align with it? The Babel episode is about our desires to build the world that we want that will never align with God's desires for the world. Think about it. People are still listening to the snake. They still think that we can create world peace through superior firepower. It will never happen. That is not how Jesus has given us to bring peace into the world. He literally gave us the cross. It's the exact opposite. All right? Like, it means dying to yourself, not them dying to yourself. Like, it's totally backwards. The way that reconciliation comes is through the broken body of Christ and the pouring out of ourselves for each other. Look around you. You can see the world is still listening to the snake. They're trying to bring about some kind of divine utopian future by getting everyone to see things as they do. If everyone just saw things the way I did, we'd all live at peace. It's just not true at all. We have to at some point understand um, that there's a voice missing, and it's the voice of the Spirit. And it's hard. We hear it, and it doesn't make any sense. How could victory come from losing. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul tells you this. The wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense. But this is the voice we are called to. This is the way that we are told the world will be made right again. And so we are called to be a set out people. So for those of you today, I want to speak to those who like kind of, you're kind of discouraged with like your spiritual journey. Like you've never experienced any kind of like miraculous thing. Um, I, you know, never 
you've never spoken in tongues, you've never been around it, you don't, you've never seen any healings happen, and you're like, I, I read about these miraculous signs, and I just think they're all BS, and I don't, I don't see them, so I don't believe them, and, and because I've been studying and following Jesus forever, and, and, I don't, and I, there's no signs in, in, in my life, these miraculous signs of the presence of the Spirit, like, I don't see any of them, and so now you're discouraged, and you're maybe like, I, I, where is the presence of God in my life, because all these other people are experiencing all these things, and where's, where's my presence of God? I want to sort of clear this for you and like move this, remove this mountain for you, okay? Um, that is not the point of the gifts. That is not the point of the tongues or the healings and the prophecies. That is not the point of any of it. The point is not so that you can know that you're going to heaven. Those things happened at specific times and specific places and still do, specific times and specific places for specific reasons, but that is not how you know that the, the Spirit of God is present in your life. The Spirit of God is present in your life. The, the way you will know this is by you will be drawn towards God's children. That you, you will constantly be being led by the Spirit and growing in love and respect and desire for a relationship from people who are nothing like you, who you see as your brother and sister. You, you will have this growing sense of unity with people that you never did before. And when you were over here in your old life, these ways that you, that, that, that you judged people and that you pushed back against people, maybe you were xenophobic and maybe you, and maybe you still are and you see these things and you're maybe like the spirit of God is now leading you to do the work to like, to reconcile and to purge yourself of all these sort of, sort of ways that you honor yourself and dishonor other people by thinking you're higher than them. And this general sense of humility and lifting other people up, not seeing yourself as better, your culture, your race, your language as better than others, but humbling yourself and drawing near to people as your teachers, as your brothers and sisters in love. And when the Spirit of God is present in your life, you are constantly being reconciled to people that you never gave a thought to before. And there's a general path, a general growth. Because the Spirit of God doesn't just come to do magic tricks. The Spirit of God comes to set the world to rights again. This is what God is doing. And it happens through the church. And so if you don't have this, if you are, are the kind of person that is secretly judging everyone, and only you can know this, secretly pushing away from everyone, and your biggest desire is to just be around people who are exactly like you, so you can all sit around and be right together. The Spirit of God is not present in that. That is not the Spirit of God leading you. That is you leading yourself. That is the voice of the snake speaking to you. And you must reject that. You must repent of that. You must turn around and go the other direction because that is leading you away from God's church. When you look at organizations, when you look at movements, Christian movements, this is one of the things we should be looking for and in ourselves. Are we open to each other? Are we open to discerning together? Are we being Christ-like to each other? Is your first tendency when you meet somebody that you disagree with to bolt the other direction or to block them and lock them away from you? Or 
Is that too difficult because you know that you already belong to them and they already belong to you because they are your brother or sister in Christ? This is what God is doing. And so now, why don't we take communion and why don't we ponder all of these things? Our community servers can take the elements and spread around the room. Communion is the picture of all of this. Again, that diverse community in the first century gathered around the love feast, the agape feast, taking the bread, um, the body of Christ broken for you, and the wine, which is the blood of Christ, poured out for you, and taking that inside of ourselves and understanding that there's parts of our life that have not yet been touched by the Spirit of God that need to be. And I think in general, we need to spend some time regularly in our house churches, on Sunday mornings, uh, in the prayer room, whatever, praying for the presence of the Spirit of God. I honestly think, like I said, if the Spirit of God were to move and do something miraculous, I think many of us would panic. I'm okay with that. But my hope is that the outcome of what we are doing, the outcome of these gatherings, the outcome of our worship and our focus and our prayers would be the reconciliation of all people under King Jesus now and forevermore. Communion servers, you can come on up. I want to welcome all of you to the table. Let's take communion. This is the body of Christ. You are all welcome. I don't put limits on who can and can't take it because it's not my body broken for you. It's the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you are doing in our midst. Lead us, guide us, awaken us to your presence. Awaken us to the absence of your presence as well. Let us repent of all of that. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.